to keep comparing this to Voyager, but you notice how this is another episode that's actually better than it probably should be, mostly because it is effectively not an episode of Star Trek that has been adapted to Star Trek. Larry Niven actually wrote this sucker. Uh, he was brought in. So Niven had been kind of hitting it off at this point, and anybody who's familiar with known space and Ringworld can probably tell you why. But, uh, and I'm not sure the exact timeline, and I didn't look it up because it doesn't matter. The point is, he was already big enough at this point that he was someone who had fans and was relatively popular, to the point where Dorothy Fontana, uh, DC Fontana, sorry, I keep calling her Dorothy. All the interviews call her Dorothy, that's why I keep saying that, so that's the name that's stuck in my head. Miss Fontana was quite a bit of a fan of his, and it was actually a, a wish of hers. It was a desire to bring him in and do something with Trek. This is something that extended back to TOS, but by the time the animated series came around, there was a little bit more weight and clout behind Trek because of the re revitalization that led to the animated series itself. So they had a little bit more politi political clout in Hollywood to be able to make this happen. Niven was like, yeah, all right. And while he has listed several reasons both for and against this idea, it seems to boil down to a concept that he's mentioned in several other interviews I've seen by this gentleman. It's the idea that I made something and I want to see what other people make of it. So he made something and wanted to see what people made of it. Sadly, the Kazinti, based on the Kazin in this episode, uh, aren't really used again. They are referenced in two previous episodes. I pointed out one of those references. They're also in uh, the Time Trap. And they are apparently referenced in Picard. Fresh reminder, haven't seen Picard. But that's all I know about that. It would be interesting to see if they ever do anything with this species. But at the same time, I'm okay with them not. We have plenty of stupid warrior races roaming around. And I don't even mean the Klingons. I like the Klingons. But we've got other... We've got knockoff Klingons. We've got Kazon, for God's sake. So can, can we not? That being said, um, what I find interesting is that he and Fontana workshopped and were like, why don't we do this? No, no, that's not going to work. It's too sci-fi. Why don't we do this? No, that's too violent. And apparently they cycled through three or four other different ideas prior to settling on this one. And when I say prior to, I mean... Ronberry himself suggested adapting uh, the soft weapon to this episode in order to use it for Trek. Now, I think it's actually a good fit. This is effectively a bottle episode in how contained it is, but it's not a bottle episode at all because if this was... Uh, first of all, this is a fairly expensive episode. We had all the Kazin they had to animate and the different weapon forms and the different animations of the weapon attacking and the Kazin ship and the ice planet. So this was an expensive episode, the exact opposite of a bottle show. But in terms of how contained the story was, this was a nice, uh, enclosed episode of the week. Now, you all know that I am rather pro-continuity, and I like long, contiguous story arcs, and I like background continuity and setting continuity and character continuity and string continuity, right? But even under those circumstances, I still champion that the idea of episodes of the week. Just, I'd, I'd rather it not be the norm, that's all. This is a great example of a good episode of a week. Yes, I do very much like this episode, by the way. I think it's only surpassed by yesteryear for me amongst TAS so far. We have... Uh, he was even given permission, by the way. This is actually kind of cool. They had... I mean, this is Larry Niven, but they had sufficient respect for the man and wanted to, to have him come on and do this so badly, they pretty much gave him total creative freedom. Up to and including, direct quote, ejecting Kirk entirely, which he did. 
In fact, Kirk and Scotty are both ejected entirely, along with Miss uh, Miss Chapel, and most of the new characters, uh, Eric's and Maresh. Maresh? And the Enterprise isn't even in this episode. But it works, because it's an engaging little tale, and it's another story in exploring the stars. Exactly what an episode of the week should be among Star Trek. Now, it's not a perfect episode. The exposition's a little dry, and the animation is the animation. I will never get over watching Uhura speedwalk across the terrain. That's just hysterical. But it's also interesting to really examine this one. There's only five cast members in this one because of the reduced uh, crew. And this also is the only time in old Trek history, from where no man has gone before to Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country, only time in that whole period where Kirk has no presence in a, in a work of Star Trek. Interesting little bit of history there. Oh yeah, McCoy's gone too. So, Stasis Box. Okay, that's actually a really cool concept. We We can... <laughs> The historian in me just gushes about this idea. The idea of having something where an ancient race, a truly ancient race, put pieces of their civilization into these boxes to be perfectly stasized for however long. Effectively infinitely, since they've already lasted a billion years. And it was so long ago that the, the life that existed in the galaxy back then wiped itself out entirely in a war. And life in general had to start over from that point onward probably leading to the precursors, or not the, what are they called? The the preservers, that's it, leading to the preservers, who may or may not have had anything to do with the founders, which eventually lead to the seeding of humanoid life in the galaxy. But all of that, that's after the slavers. Way, way back over here is where the slavers would be. And it's just fascinating to think about. I also, uh, I, I, I love the concept, just, there's so much you can do with this narratively. Who would put what in these boxes and why? Now, if you understand why I find this concept fascinating, in fiction, usually they tend to ignore the common people when it comes to making decisions, like normal people, which is fine. You're talking about the world leaders and the heroes and the villains and all that. But I want you to imagine right now, you can wander around your home or your apartment or whatever, and you could pick one thing to put in this stasis box. What do you put in there? And you can put whatever. And... There's no limitation on that. I, I could put my bottle of water if I felt like being weird. I don't get the point of that. I could put my beard comb in there if I felt like preserving the idea of how, you know, of the fact that we used to groom ourselves because we grew hair as a species. I could put in, um, well, here's a good example. Uh, do I have it here? Oh, I'm, oh, no, there it is. I could put in a USB drive with tons and tons of documents on it just to kind of historically preserve that. I could put in what's this one's new Super Mario Brothers to show what video games are and how we how we presented ourselves educationally and or not educa sorry culturally and entertainment entertainmently it's a word I could put some food in there I could put it's just uh, the, the possibilities are ridiculous and there's so much that could be reverse engineered and extrapolated from these concepts that I find the whole thing absolutely amazing. They already mentioned that they put a flying belt in, which apparently is how they invented artificial gravity. I prefer the Federation books answer to that, but let's move on. Someone also put in a bomb with the pin already pulled. <laughs> now, you might think, that's horrible. Why would you leave that to future generations? A. Trolls. B. 
these were probably not actually designed for future generations. These were probably just a method of preservation. Like putting stuff in a fridge. Especially if your enemies, who are currently waging a war of genocide against you, are going through and you want to preserve... You know, you, you've been, you are historically known to keep you know, valuables in these boxes. Why not put a trap in one? Just in case one of your enemies finds one. So you can see how dangerous and terrifying and awesome this idea is, and just tons of credit for the concept. It's a shame we don't see this concept in the future. Even if you just throw everything else out the window, just the concept of the stasis boxes is fascinating. Moving on. Oh, by the way, I am curious what you would put in a stasis box, if you had that freedom. If every one of you got to pick one thing to put in the stasis box, or like like enough stuff that could fit into a, a box, what would you put in there, you know? So... This is when we find out uh, that these, the, 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 the sorry, I, I want to say the Zinkethi, wrong place. The Kazinti, sorry, are very much into the color pink. Really? Re look, I, no judgment. I own a pink shirt. I wore it when I was building my computer, if you remember that. But th it doesn't look good on them. <laughs> and it is actually an animation error. Dorothy... Miss Fontana actually flat out said that she didn't even catch this until it went live because of how busy she was with everything, which makes sense since she was effectively running the show and being the in-between for Roddenberry and everyone else. So, yeah. Anyways, we find out that the Kazinti and their love of pink apparently went to war with, the, with humanity four times and got pasted each time. Now, that's amusing in its own right. It gets funnier in a second, but I just wanted to mention, there's actually a law that they're not allowed weapons. I want to say that one more time. I want you to imagine that there's, that there's a law. Like, I mean, I know that people have attempted this in real life to varying effect, but I want you to imagine that there was just a law that the nation of blah in real life, you can fill in whichever one you want, was no longer allowed to have any weapons at all. The whole, just cross the board. I mean, if they lost four wars in a row, I could see it getting to that point. We see throughout this episode why they lost all these wars, too, because these guys are idiots. And they're also biased and prejudiced. Well, you're a vegetarian, so you're beneath me, speaking to Spock. Spock. And you're a woman, so you're beneath me, which... <laughs> I also like the bit where Spock is like, I value you, Uhura. I'd like to think that the reason that Spock and Uhura end up in the Kelvin timeline together is entirely because of this episode. I'm not quite kidding about that. It wouldn't surprise me. Because the Kelvin timeline has already referenced at least two things by my track from TAS, so... Anyways. <clears throat> but no. Here's the best part. I did a little math and a little research. Sulu says the last war, so the fourth of four wars where the human, where humanity beat the, the Kazinti, was 200 years ago, which would put it in 2069. Now, even if we say that's rough, let me give you some figures here. First of all, Earth had, humanity, EarthGov, hadn't left the soul system at that point in time. They were still experimenting with the kind of warp that would allow them to, lead, you know, cross the system within relative speeds. Remember, systems are big. So they were still system-locked, and they still beat these people four times. Hang on, it gets better. 2069 was actually the war where the, uh, I can't read my own dollar, the Conestoga launched to colonize Terra Nova, which is mentioned in uh, the episode Terra Nova over an Enterprise. But hang on, this is even better. 
in 2063 was First Contact, the movie, and the Vulcan moment. Six years. And I want you to picture the state Earth was in during First Contact. I know, Trek's timeline has always been wonky, but this is just funny. Hang on, I got one more, then I'll move on. In 2070, one year after Earth finally defeated the Kazenti for the, for the fourth time, Slogo Cola came up with its, its final slogan, which it used for centuries afterwards. Now, that is a long-standing brand. Moving on. Shoo. What are the, what's in the stasis thing? Well, three things. A poster, a piece of fresh meat, because stasis, and the eponymous slaver weapon. I don't know, maybe it's just the history geek in me, but I would be just gushing over the poster and the meat. <sighs> I'm not joking. Posters can say so much about someone. And imagine being able to get a perfectly preserved poster from the BCs right now. I know they didn't use posters back then, but you get my point, right? Imagine producing a, a tangible, unedited, unaltered, colored picture from the BC era, which I know isn't even getting it across, but, you know, within human history. I have my own posters up there, my, my own design, each one of them. They're actually based on my wallpapers. And there's, I mean, you could look at those and deduce a whole lot if you didn't know much about human society just from analyzing and, and looking into them. And that's just my stupid crap. This could mean anything. This could be a band. This could be a, an actual picture. This could be a target Based on the evidence in the episode, I'm going to go ahead and say that my my theory is that this was this agent's target, and the meat was there in order to is to be a ration, and this was probably some the gun is of course, you know a a a, a tool, a, a spy tool, a James Bond tool, and so this was probably a box that was put as like a dead drop, right? So you put it dead drop's the wrong term, but you know what I mean. It's it's a it's a supply cache. So that the spy can go grab some food, see what his target is, that's why I said the dead drop, and grab the tool and move on. And that actually lines up pretty neatly, and Niven is known for putting some thought into his work, and this episode makes a surprising amount of logical sense. Unlike, e even the other episodes I like in this show have logical loopholes or flaws in them. This one, not so much. This is probably the most well-written episode of the animated series, and yes, I know it's an adaptation, I already, I already made that joke. But it is worthy of note regardless. Either way. Oh, by the way, I'm pretty sure I have uh, read the soft weapon. It's been at least 22 years since I've done so, so I, I don't remember it all that well. I'm just waiting for someone in the comment section to be like, well, Laura, you see, all your thoughts have been confirmed in the soft weapon. Anyways, <clears throat> but yeah, just, and then the, the meat, what, what kind of meat is it? Is it, is it flavored? Is it already cooked? Is, is it something that we could use to, to, to scan the genetics of it to figure out which animal it came from? I mean, there's so much you could do with that. Naturally, the uh, Kazinti decide to eat it and don't really care for it. And they, they don't care about the picture because that's just whatever. They, all they really want is the gun. Okay, cool. So the thing does all sorts of cool little stuff. It's got the telescope, it's got the laser, it's got the rocket pack, it's got the energy dampener. And again, I'm totally with Sulu. This is a spy gadget. This is a utility belt. And something that is actually pretty cool in that re regard. Then we, we see, I, I mean, 
This is in my notes where I say, no wonder that a early warp system-locked humans pasted these idiots four times, but these people are pathetic. Spock then decides to be smart. He deliberately attacks the alien in a, in a way he knows will injure him substantially and runs away leaving him alive, knowing that doing so has actually insulted him while insulting him while insulting him. Cute. This, of course, leads to the confrontation and where they get captured because they, they deduce what's going on with the, the device and accidentally stumble onto the doom setting. Whoops. This then leads to probably my actual favorite part of the episode. They line it up. They do, they do what I've talked about before. They show and then they tell. Because what they do is first they show the thing and what happens. And they get to the device and the computer says, here's, the, here's what you should do. And then we see the weapon and it's clearly the wrong configuration. And then they leave. Then, telling, they tell what everyone else hasn't picked up on, just in case anyone hasn't. So you're a computer. You, and you have been shut off for an unknown period of time. And you were at war. Now you've been picked up by an unknown alien who doesn't know you and demands to know your ultimate weapon setting. What do you give them? And then... <laughs> Smock mentions that such a terrifying weapon should never ha- you know, be in anyone else's hands. I-, I don't necessarily disagree with him, but considering that A, they have the transporter, which is a more terrifying weapon, and B, we see more terrifying weapons than this in future Trek and arguably in Past Trek as well, Doomsday Device. I'm not sure I 100% agree with him. If nothing else, it would have been interesting to study how exactly this device is able to convert matter and energy at such a level. <gasps> That's it! They st- they find a slaver weapon, and they use it to figure out how to make those self-replicating mines to keep the Dominion from going through the wormhole. My god, it all makes sense. At long last, Star Trek is now one cohesive whole. I did like this episode, despite my snarking. This is a good outing. And like I said, if not for yesteryear, this would be my favorite so far. What do you all think? And I'm looking forward to all of you schooling me in the soft weapon. And otherwise, I'll see you next time.